Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, May the 12th, 2023. As always, I'm broadcasting from San Francisco, that most cinematic of cities. We're all familiar, of course, with the great image. We should be familiar for people watching of the great image of Madeleine Elster underneath the Golden Gate Bridge uh, from uh, Alfred Hitchcock's iconic 1958 movie, Vertigo. Um, we've talked a little bit, I think, before about Vertigo on this show. People who haven't seen it need to. It's a film about one man's relationship, James Stewart, as uh, Scotty Ferguson, his relationship with two women who are actually the same woman, uh, a blonde aristocrat uh, uh, called Madeline Elster, uh, Kim Novak, and Kim Novak also acting as Judy Barton, a rather coarse Midwestern shop girl. It's a magnificent film, and my interest in it was triggered by an equally excellent piece in the Washington Post this week uh, entitled Vertigo is still the best movie ever or the worst movie ever. Discuss. And as it happened, the uh, the piece by Ty Burr, who's our guest today, uh, noted that Vertigo turns 65 earlier this week. The movie premiered in San Francisco on May 9th. 1958. As it happens, my wife's birthday is also on May 9th. It's a special day, although she's uh, significantly younger than Vertigo. Uh, and uh, Ty is joining us to talk all things Vertigo. Ty, where did the film um, launch? Which uh, movie theater? I, I, I'm hoping in romantic terms it was the Castro. I'm sure I'm wrong. It was. Uh, yes, that is that is wrong, unfortunately. Um, it was a, the major... Um, I don't know the exact theater because I don't have that information right at my hand. Um, I didn't write the book on Vertigo. There is a book on Vertigo, which does have that information in it. But it did um, have a, its premiere at the major San Francisco, um, uh, you know, theater, the, 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 the palace, um, whatever. So, that Ty, how can it be this this Hitchcock movie, Vertigo? How can it be <laughs> the best movie ever and the worst movie uh, simultaneously. Expa explain the genealogy behind okay. this movie and, and your attitude towards it. Well, first of all, I have to explain something that a lot of people who don't work in, in uh, newspapers uh, don't know. I don't write the headlines. I wrote the article. The editors write the headlines. And what's funny, when you see the comments underneath this uh, piece on the Washington Post, so many of them are reacting quite angrily and huffily to the headline. Um, how can any movie be the best movie? How can this movie be the worst movie? Uh, the reason... I mean, that conversation is in the text, just not, you know, cited quite that way. And it is a grabby headline. It got your attention. Um, but the whole point is that this is a movie that has been, especially in recent years, hoisted up to the pantheon of great movies, specifically the British Film Institute's uh, Sight and Sound magazine, which has held a, yeah. a decade, once a decade poll of critics of the greatest movies ever made. Uh, and it started in the 50s. And in 2012, for the first time in 50 years, Citizen Kane was no longer the number one movie. Vertigo was the number one movie. Citizen Kane was number two. Um, 
lots of conversation about that. Uh, and then uh, in the most recent Sight and Sound poll, 2022, Vertigo actually got bumped down to number two um, and was replaced by the Belgian film uh, Jean Dielman um, with the long address that I Yeah, had. Jean Dielman's um, 23 Quai de Commerce. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that because I think it's symbolic and why Vertigo is itself... Uh, I guess, uh, a, a consequence of, of, of cultural trends. But uh, so I take your point. You're obviously an admirer of the film, whether you think it's the greatest I, I film am. of all time is another issue. Tell us, um, uh, tell us, Ty, and, and, and you're a, a longtime movie critic. Um, you were for many years the movie critic of the Boston Globe, and now you have an excellent Substack uh, newsletter, Ty Burr's Watch List, which strongly suggest anyone uh, listening or watching follow. What is it about Vertigo that makes it such a memorable film? Um, before I get to that, I just, I want to get to the other half of the, why is that the worst movie? This movie for people coming to it cold, especially people expecting a, a sort of classic Alfred Hitchcock ride, North by Northwest, Strangers on a Train, Rear Window with Jimmy Stewart. This movie does not deliver that. And it really upsets some people. There are some people who really are yeah. off by this movie. It's a creepy movie. It's weirdly shaped. Um, it is about a about as toxic a relationship as you can get. It prefigures conversations we're having now um, about toxic male behavior and gaslighting and manipulation and the male gaze and all these things. Um, and that's one reason why I think it took quite a while for it to bubble up to the top of that list. And I actually think, well, it's a separate conversation. It's part of the same cultural trend that ended up with um, Jean Dielman sort of leaping ahead of it. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, if there is an anti-Vertigo film, it's uh, Chantal Ackerman. I, I always liked Chantal Ackerman, but she was always a very acquired taste. I mean, she makes Hitchcock look like, or Hitchcock's Vertigo look like Star Wars. Yes, but both movies are about how women are looked at and how they perceive themselves. But in yeah. very different ways. Well, we'll have to do another show on on Ackerman's uh, Jean Dielman. But mm -hmm. uh, let, so let so, so tell us the story for anyone who hasn't seen it. You should see it, and you deserve to have the plot destroyed by a tie. Yes. Well, you have a moral the, obligation. You know, the movie, the the movie, movie destroys it. its own plot. That's one of the weird things about it. Okay, so the movie is about this um, police detective named uh, Scotty Ferguson, played by James Stewart, who in the opening scene. Uh, discovers he has a fear of heights when he's hanging from a roof and inadvertently causes the death of a policeman. Um, and he retires. As good a beginning a film, uh, Ty, as anything. The music, oh, everything about it. It's the that perfect first beginning. Shot, that first shot with a hand on the ladder, it just like sucks you right into it. Um, and with the music, and we'll talk about the music in a second. Um, so Scotty, German, of course. Yes. Scotty retires from the force. He is hired by an old school friend to follow the man's wife because the man says she's acting weird. This is Madeline Elster played by Kim Novak. Um, she seems to be haunted by the spirit of a, um, her, her dead, of a old, a deceased Spanish woman who is actually her ancestor. Um, Carlotta Valdez. The Carlotta great Carlotta Valdez. Valdez. So Scotty follows this woman all throughout San Francisco. And there are these long, long shots of him driving through San Francisco. And it's very dreamlike and very, People, people can get impatient with those scenes. You have to really get into the flow of them. And he falls in love with her from afar. Um, and then when she jumps into San Francisco Bay and he fishes her out, he falls in love with her from near. Um, long story short, she ends up 
jumping from the top of a bell tower and and killing herself. And Scotty has a nervous breakdown. Um, and a year later, he uh, he meets this shop girl, Judy Barton, who is very, very different in her personality and in hair color and, and presentation, but looks enough like her that he becomes obsessed with her. Um, and he um, takes her out, they start a relationship and he becomes uh, obsessed with making her look like Madeline, the dead Madeline. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about that. Basically he's, he's indulging in necrophilia here. He wants to make love to a dead woman. Um, but more to the who, point- Who doesn't, Ty? No, uh, Especially on a Friday afternoon. Well, you know, certain certain deceased movie stars, you know, make me make my heart go pitter pat. But you know, um, he um, buys her the clothes that Madeline wore. He makes her dye her hair. He, as I said in the article, he can't. He's so much. was so obsessed with the woman in his head that he can't see the woman in his arms. Um, and it's clear that Judy loves him. And then, and here's the spoiler: two thirds of the way through the movie. Hitchcock gives the game away um, in, a, in a way that's kind of awkward, but it just gets it over with. Judy sits down and writes a letter to Scotty that she intends to never mail, but it's just going to be, you know, it's going to get it. It's going to basically give the plot to the audience. And it turns out she was Madeline Elster. She was pretending to be Madeline Elster um, uh, so that the actual uh, Madeline Elster could be killed by, by her husband. So we never actually see the real Madeline Elster, but that is her being thrown off the bell tower. Um, and it's not entirely clear how much Judy Barton knew that murder was in, in the works, or and she certainly knew about it afterwards. Um, so she is keeping this secret from uh, Scotty that she's actually the same person. And at a certain point, he does discover, um, because as he says, she shouldn't have been so sentimental to keep something from her Madeline persona, but she did. Um, and there is a long scene where he drags her up to the top of the bell tower and in so doing, cures his vertigo. And we can talk the last, about that. Yeah, the last, the last right. scene. Um, and I, should I give away the end? I mean, the ending is so dark. Well, the, the ending is... It's the darkest ending in all of Hitchcock, I would argue. You would? Yeah. I think so. I mean, why? Psycho well, give it away. You know, why is it so dark? It's the only ending possible, isn't it? Yes, um, but it it absolutely leaves blood on the hero's hands, and it leaves him absolutely culpable um, and alone um, with his obsession that's been dashed. Um, it's not just that, you know, somebody is punished who perhaps deserved it. it um, it's that Scotty has to live. Uh, I mean, he gets, he's the one who gets, you know, one of the, one of the things about this movie is that the hero is not very heroic. Um, and this was commented on the time, but over the decades, especially as um, feminist film theory and um, talk of, of, of how women are portrayed in films and, and, you know, critical terms like the male gaze have sort of gone into the public conversation. This movie has become more relevant to how women are portrayed in film, how directors portray women in film, how Hitchcock portrays. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the film. interesting thing about the film is it, it's harder and harder to distinguish the film from real life or maybe his uh, obsession. It's the wrong way of thinking about it. Certainly for Hitchcock, everything was film or everything was life and there, there was no separation. What do you say about a piece of cake? That he used to like giving people a piece of cake. Um, he ate a lot of cake himself. Indeed. He did. Um, 
he treated or he mistreated Novak. I mean, he was a notorious bully of his female stars. I think the only one he treated decently was Grace Kelly because he was massively in love with her. But he treated Novak appallingly, but he got the great he got the great performance or the two great performances of her life. I mean, she's spent the last six and she's still around. She spent the last 65 years talking about Vertigo. So without Hitchcock, um, I don't know where Kim Novak would be these days. Well, she was in Picnic and she was in Bell Book and Candle with Jim Stewart. Exactly. I mean, um, it's not exactly memorable. No, I mean, she would have been a pieces about Bell Book and Candle. Right, exactly. Um, and it's interesting that for years she kind of poo-pooed. Vertigo was considered a, a, a not not successful Hitchcock movie. It wasn't considered a bomb. The French picked it up, of course. The French Correct. always have odd taste. And they recognized, was it Truffaut? Who recognized, yes. first of all, the genius of Vertigo? Um, I think uh, Truffaut wrote, certainly wrote about it. I think Godard wrote about it. Um, they understood the dreamlike, obsessive quality of it. It was... Considered in slightly poor taste by American audiences, uh, critics were mixed well, on it. Well, it is in poor taste. That's why it's such a great film. <laughs> um, and it was, and and then it was along with three other Hitchcock films taken out of circulation for fifteen years. So it was this, um, and I remember when I in the seventies when I was a film student, it was a movie you couldn't see. So it, along with Rear Window, Trouble with Harry and Rope. So there, there were these sort of legendary Hitchcock films that nobody had seen in a long time. Um, and maybe if you were lucky, you knew somebody with a, you know, a, then, back then a 16 millimeter copy or something. They were um, like Carlotta Valdez, right? Right. Um, and then in the early 80s, they, the copyright issues were wrinkled out and they, all four of them got a theatrical release. And I, I remember uh, they got a big theatrical release you know, in New York and um the Ziegfeld, I think, or, you know, one of the major movie theaters. And I remember going to see Rear Window with a crowd just knocked out by it. And I remember going to see Vertigo with a crowd that came out wondering, what did we just see? It's not, it's a challenging movie. It's not a fun movie. Um, Rear Window is a, it's a scary movie, but it's fun. Um, Vertigo gets into dark themes. Um, gets well, into although a- I, I don't want to make this a conversation about Rear Window, but in the age of social media, I think Rear Window oh, is yeah. as relevant now as it ever was. What about the, I mean, it, the sexual element is, is, it's just, it's a film, it's a truly pornographic film. It's dripping in every sense, tie with sex. I mean, there's the scene where Kim Novak, after falling into the bay, she wakes up naked in, 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 in Scotty Ferguson's bed, in his, right. his bedsit in San Francisco. What happened there? Did he rape her? Um, we, I, we don't know. We do know that she's what, naked. What do you think? At the very did least, he, he did he interfere with her, do you think? Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I, I, should I'm we want to know? I, I mean, should we up. assume that they, cons- that he took advantage of her when she was? My reading is that at the very least, he, he undressed her and saw her naked and, 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 you know, put her to bed and either she woke up or he did something to her. My read is that he he just undressed her and put her in bed. Maybe I'm naive. Maybe I'm innocent. Um, I do think that though that they clearly had a consummated relationship at some point. Um, yeah, and the set, as I said, I mean, this is a film that is just so full of absurd, almost schoolboy sexual imagery. I mean, Coit Tower is the 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 central figure. Everywhere you go, you see this huge phallic mm-hmm. symbol in San Francisco behind. 
um, behind uh, Scotty, even the, the tower itself. I mean, I don't know whether Hitchcock had been reading his Freud or had been imagining his Freud, um, but th there's so much phallic imagery, even the, the, the moment in Muir Woods where mm -hmm. they go and they look at these huge trees. Was, was Hitchcock playing cat and mouse with the authorities? Was he just trying to put as much gross sex into this as he possibly could and get away with it? Um, well, I mean, it, you have to understand this is a, a point. This is 1958. The production, right? Exactly, and and, and they were pretty tight. They were pretty. Uh, they were pretty strict. Those guys back then. They were, but not by 1958. I actually think he could have pushed it further. And if you look at Marnie, which was made uh, yeah years later, that is much kinkier. Um, and then you get to a movie like um, Frenzy, where finally he could be as open about it. And it's, a, it's a really unpleasant, tasteless film. He didn't know what to do with these new yeah. films when he was able to actually get them. Um, but I think I think that he is, um, as usual, he's playing games with the audience. And yes, those towers everywhere. Uh, I mean, Coit Tower. I mean, even the name of it. Even I mean, the name. It's, exactly. it's as if Hitchcock invented the name. I mean, it's, it's about as phallic a symbol as any city could have, especially in you know San Francisco, given its sexual politics, it's very appropriate. I mean, do, do should we read? I mean, people, of course, who interpret films in a very personal way, should we read Hitchcock's own peculiar sexual yeah. identity, his obsession with women, his uh, the fact that he couldn't himself get it up, or was there something? In, in Vertigo there, a longing for women articulated through his movie? I'm hesitant to read in, read just direct symbolism into movies. I think especially with Hollywood film, um, classic studio era film, we can, you know, you can read all of these analyses, all of these meanings into them. Sometimes they're intended. Sometimes they're there, but never articulated by the filmmakers, but they're there. Um, uh, and I, I think that's actually true with Hitchcock. And, and in the case of Hitchcock, you know, certainly there's a theme running through his entire filmography of the ice cold blonde um, and the hero thawing it out. And clearly this reflects um, his own, uh, you know, his own interests, his own obsessions. And um, the backstory of Vertigo, of course, was that he wanted Vera Miles. He was grooming Vera Miles to be the next Grace Kelly. He was upset that Grace Kelly mm. had- And Vera Miles ended up in Marnie, which as you Monica. say, was even, even grosser film. <laughs> And he um, and uh, Vera Miles got pregnant. Um, but, uh, you know, if you read the, the, the making of Vertigo book, it's pretty clear that he hopped pretty quickly to Kim Novak. But, it, you know, he, it, I think we can make too much that he was really angry at Vera Miles for getting pregnant and, this, and that he fell on Kim Novak as a last resort. Um, it looks like she was in the mix pretty early on. Um, but it's the most direct Hitchcock film about manipulating women, manipulating a blonde woman, manipulating a, quote, average woman into a iconic, frosty, remote figure. All of these are things that play throughout Hitchcock's filmography. And I also think at this point, even before he sat down with Francois Truffaut in the early 1960s, and there's this wonderful book, Hitchcock Truffaut, where they talk about every single film he made. Um, and Truffaut is like laying out all these analyses and Hitchcock is going, basically, my dear boy, they're just movies. Um, but he does cop to some things. Um, and I think at this point in his career, he was thinking, stepping back and thinking about the themes that he worked with. And 
this does feel like a personal film. I do feel like James Stewart's character, Scotty, is a stand-in for men who are obsessed with a certain kind of women. And I think that Hitchcock certainly um, looked at himself, looked in the mirror of this film and saw himself. And also, you cannot forget the fact that his wife, Alma. Yeah, I was going to bring up Alma. I mean, she was so um, involved with the work. She must have been sort of half disturbed, half in love with I mean, she understood this film as well as anyone. I think she did. And I think that we will never know, but I think they talked. She was certainly the, I mean, when they met, she was an editor and he was a title writer. She was more important in the film industry than than he was. And she would make occasionally, you know, dark comments about him taking her out of the film industry when they got married. Um, she was very, very smart. He, he relied on her opinion more than anybody else's. Um, I would love to have known what she thought about this but movie. But, but the film doesn't also work as a, in the sort of standard feminist critique because, as you say, uh, Judy Barton was in on the murder or certainly on the plot. The, mm -hmm. the only purely evil person in it was... Um, was, uh, was Kevin a, Elster. Yeah, Kevin Elster. Um, but uh, it's sometimes hard to feel sorry for Jimmy Stewart, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, and I know... I, I I advise you to if you're if you're a subscription to the Washington Post, go to the, my article because this speaks to the power of this movie, um, and not just the, the article, but to the power of this movie. It has twelve hundred comments underneath, and people yeah. are absolutely going back and forth about everything that we're talking about here. Um, and there are many people who say, "I watched this movie and I hated Jimmy Stewart in it. I just thought he was the creepiest. He, I, I think he's evil." Um, and I think you can bisect that by generation, by age to a certain degree, but not always. I think you can bisect it by gender to a certain degree, but not always. Um, it is a movie that really, it, you know, it divides people. Some people have a really um, nasty response to it. They really re recoil from this movie. Some people find it dark, but incredibly powerful and moving and sad. Um, for both of the characters. Um, I certainly do. I feel sad for Midge. We haven't talked about Midge. Um, yeah, so Midge was, uh, they were, he, he and Midge were at um, uh, Stanford together, right? Midge was- Supposedly. His, supposedly, uh, although Barbara supposedly got down on the peninsula. Midge was actually, in some ways, more attractive than, than uh, Kim Novak, certainly. Well, uh, that's an odd relationship and, of course, very phallic, too, because she lives in an apartment overlooking Coit Tower. Mm -hmm. Tell us about Midge and her significance. He was uh, Scotty Ferguson's friend. Well, a fiancé. They'd been in Yeah, ex-girlfriend, ex I guess. Correct. Um, and, yes, they'd gone to college together, although Stuart is, you know, 20 years older than Barbara Bel Geddes, at least, um, and nobody says anything about that. Um, but she is the reality principal. Um, there have been people that say she's Alma, she's Alma Hitchcock. Um, she mm. is a, a real woman. She's a um, she's not made out of fever dreams and obsession and lust. She's there. Um, she is in the visual grammar of the time. She is um, attractive, but she's not glamorous or beautiful. And before. she's a careerist. She's a she's a, career a, she's a Yep. I mean, do you think it's possible that? Um... The reason their relationship broke up, it was never said, was his uh, his his 
sexual inability, his impotency, perhaps. I'm not sure whether that was a, a pre or a post uh, vertigo thing in terms of falling from the roof. But as I said, I, this this is a film that can only be understood in, in 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 as a sexual narrative of one kind or another. Right, and he is impotent. Um, he is. I mean, when when he loses, when, when he gets vertigo, he has to quit his job. He stays at home. He can't even get up on a stepladder. Uh, he is he is um, as impotent as men can get in a 1950s movie. The way in a way, it's a feminist film because what Hitchcock is saying is all men are obsessed with fear of falling, which is a fear of, I don't know, castration or impotency. So it could have been made by a woman. You know, again, I, I hesitate to like do cut and dried symbolism like that. I understand, uh, but, but I can, because I'm not a film critic like right. you, so I can get away with it. <laughs> um, I think, but I think those, they're, they're there and you can read them in there and you can pull them out. But I just hesitate to say that Hitchcock thought, okay, you know, she, th this is a movie about castration. It, I think he did. Think castration of, fear or fear, fear, of castration. fear of I, I mean the French have fallen on that I mean yeah. and the, the woman we haven't talked about we've talked about Kim Novak as Judy and as Madeline we've talked about Midge but the most beautiful woman in the film was of course San Francisco I don't know if you've been to San Francisco recently um not recently Ty, it's a very uh the the, the the lady has aged uh, not very well um the city looks as beautiful as it ever has or could look is that fair in the film the city is beautiful in the film. And as you say, the city is a character in the films. The city is the matrix on which, you know, Scotty's obsession is laid out. Um, it's the traveling through the city is the journey of his infatuation. With round, and round and round and round in his uh, green Jaguar car. And there's that scene where he comes out into the flower shop. Um, and the colors just explode. Yeah, and that flower shop, it doesn't still exist, but that lane just off Union Square is mm -hmm. still the same as it was 65 years ago, except that the lane's full of homeless people. You can go online and find people who've recreated Scotty's um, obsessive following of Madeline on you know, Google Maps. Yeah, you um, can do the trips. And not only has uh, it been dethroned as the film as the greatest movie of all time, but it's even been dethroned, sadly, as the best San Francisco movie of all time, replaced by Bullet, which is a very different kind of film. Funny, isn't it, uh, Ty, how times change? The yeah, I don't know. I mean... Well, it is a better San Francisco film than Vertigo is is unimaginable to me, but clearly times change in, it, in our attitude to movies. Um, you know what my favorite San Francisco movie is? What's I Up, don't. Doc? What? What's Up, Doc? Do you remember What's Up, Doc, with the chase? I do, I, but I, I'm sort of trying to remember <laughs> it. Watch that movie again. It's hilarious for one thing, but there is a chase scene up in the way that Bullet had a car chase scene. Um, there is a madcap screwball comedy chase scene up and down the hills of San Francisco that is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And um, there was I, a there was a um, Robert uh, a Mel Brooks. No, 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 Peter Bogdanovich. It was Peter Bogdanovich. Uh, Peter Bogdanovich parody. What was that one in set in San Francisco? Um, well, it was it was a sort of fond remake of Bringing Up Baby, which is a movie that takes place in the. Uh, as yeah. But they, they, you 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 suggest in your piece that uh, Robert Downey Jr. is talking of remaking Vertigo. It, there was an announcement in the trade press uh, about a month ago, month and a half ago. That, is that going to be um, a disaster? Is that conceivable? You know, the script hasn't even been written yet. Um, it's in development. Like many films in development, it may never get made. 
Um, so it was just it was just basically an announcement that uh, Downey has been attached to this idea. Um, honestly, I don't think it'll ever get made. You know, um, the, the, looking at that, you know the scene that, I mean, there's so many scenes in Vertigo, but the one, I don't know if you've read uh, Zizek's book, The Parallax View, but um, he has this moment in The Parallax View where he says the, the climax of Vertigo is when Jimmy Stewart first sets eyes on uh, Madeline. It was in that old San Francisco restaurant, now's closed, the very plush red velvet place i can remember right. its and name the but that's sort of explodes around her. yeah it's it's the look so uh, finally um you're you're obviously having a lot of fun T tell me a little bit about watchlist i'm thrilled that uh you you're no well i'm not thrilled that you're no longer the well uh, the 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 the, uh, the the boston globe film correspondent you did that for a while but you are reinventing yourself too, just as you're reinventing perhaps how we should think about Vertigo. Tell me about Tyber's watch list, what you're trying to do on Substack and why this might be the next chapter in, uh, in, in film criticism. Well, it's certainly my next chapter. So um, I was two decades as a film critic at the Boston Globe. Before that, I was 11 years at Entertainment Weekly, uh, reviewing films on video and, and films in theaters and reviewing all sorts of stuff. I've been doing this for four decades. Um, toward the end of my run at the Boston Globe, uh, there were various dissatisfactions. One of them was that I felt like I wasn't reviewing, writing about movies the way people watch them anymore. Um, you know, still the model is for first run film critics is movie comes out in the theaters, you write about it then. Um, but certainly in the pandemic era, um, but even before with streaming, so many people are seeing the movie when it comes out um, you know, two weeks later, a month later, two months later on streaming, but nobody's talking about it then. Um, I wanted to try and mix that up. And uh, um, and actually I found some, a, a little bit of resistance on that, you know, when, when dealing with sort of legacy media. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to do with the watch list is that um, we all have a Netflix subscription. We, we all have a Amazon. Yeah, Prime. you just actually wrote for the Washington Post about how Netflix is ending its DVD rentals. That's right. But it, if anything, it's even more central now than it was when we used to get the Correct. little. So we red have all these in the post. We have all these um, these uh, streaming platforms, but we don't have any idea what what what's on them, what movies. And there's some great movies. So part of what I want to do with the watch list, and it's a newsletter that you get in your email. You sign up. It's free. If you want to pay for it, that's great because there's. Well, you should pay. We got to keep keep you, you uh, keep yeah. you in popcorn, Ty. Um, well, but there's extras that you get um, with that. But two or three times a week, you get an email from me saying, "Here's something good on Hulu. Here's something good in the theater. Here's something good on Amazon Prime," um, as well as other cultural conversations. Because I wrote a weekly pop culture com column at the Globe, so it's just a way for me to do what I was doing, but with a measure more freedom and in a way that hopefully and seems to be useful, actually practical for people who have all these channels on TV, but don't know, want to just want to find something good to watch. And that isn't necessarily a superhero movie. Um, so yeah, that's- There are many superhero movie. movies. I've been dragged to many by my, by my daughter. Yeah, Finally, Ty, I got to ask you, and you're probably going to dodge the question, but I'm still going to ask you. Is Vertigo the best movie ever? And if it isn't, at least in your mind, what is it? I'm guessing you, you're you not a, a Jean Dielman. Uh... Oh, I, I like that film a lot. Well, like you it. might like it, but you wouldn't call it the best film ever. You know, a, a, any movie critic gets asked all the time. In fact, I just guessed, got asked it last night. Well, you, don't um, you get to vote in these polls? What did you vote I, Yeah, for? no, I got to vote in the Sight and Sound poll, absolutely. Um, but we get asked, what's your favorite movie of all time? Um, 
which is actually a different question from what's the best movie of all time. But I'll tell you what my two favorite ones are. Um, and honestly, Vertigo, just get back. I think Vertigo is a brilliant film. I think it's a great film. It's a resonant film. It's a meaningful film. Is it my favorite Hitchcock film? Probably not. Um, I would go for Notorious or Rear Window, personally. Um, mm. I, I love those movies. Um, um, Shadow of a Doubt. Uh, I used to live in Santa Rosa, so it, it, Shadow of a Doubt is, I think it's my second favorite Shadow yeah. of a Doubt. But anyway, was what, so, what, so what's your favorite? Well, when people ask me that, I give them two answers, because one thing people always want to hear, they, they want to hear a movie they know, they want to kind of feel validated, and, and that's cool, and that's fine, and I actually have a movie that's one of my, that is my favorite movie that I would watch anytime that they've heard of, and that's The Godfather. I mean, it's it just mm. holds up, it, it, it's it works on Which every one, all three, or just no number one. I mean, I I like number two. Yeah, I've already been to see it in a movie. movie. I don't know, you know, I'm sure you know the um, Alamo, the movie theater in San Francisco. Yes. I've already seen both versions twice this year, and we just uh -huh. and I just saw Godfather three. My wife refused to come with me because she said it was terrible, but I actually thought it wasn't bad. It's better. Oh, no, it's got some good things in it. Uh, yeah. So, so Godfather one is your favorite. Well, and that's one of the favorites. And then the other one is the movie nobody's heard of or hadn't for 20 years, but although it finally became available again in this country. And that's a French film called Celine and Julie Go Boating by the mm. French film director Jacques Rivette, which is kind of one of the first meta movies. Um, and it's a, um, it's a story about two, it's a, a, a women friendship movie. It's a comedy. It's Alice in Wonderland in Paris. It's a, Meta movie that, about storytelling. It's absolutely wonderful. It's three and a half hours long. Nothing happens in the first half. People just stream out of the theaters. And then if you stick around, all the pieces click into place. And it's one of the greatest experiences you've ever so if had. You, if you hated Vertigo, you're going to really hate that one. Oh, absolutely. But I love this thing. And it is available on DVD in this country now and on the Criterion channel. I highly recommend it. Celine well, and Julie Go Boating. Ty, you'll have to come back on the show and we'll have a, a whole show on Celine and Julie Go Boating. I would love to do that.